you have your Bibles, go ahead and encourage you to turn. Uh, you know, just real quick, Mitch is back, so you all know. <laughs> He's been in Texas a couple of weeks with the military, and so just made it back this week. We were praying he'd make it back for Christmas, and, and so he did. So make sure you come up and see him. We're already putting him back to work, apparently going downstairs. Not even a week off, huh? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Revelation uh, 15. Uh, this is the last week we'll be in Revelation this year. Uh, we'll resume again in January, uh, but next, year, or next week we'll be uh, in a different text, uh, specifically focusing just on why Jesus Christ came and what he accomplished uh, through his birth here. Uh, so I encourage you uh, to be here next week, also the Christmas Eve service, a real special time uh, just to be here and to gather with the church Uh, We're in Revelation 15. If you're new, if you're gathering with us for the first time, if you haven't been with us, let me just give just a little bit of of understanding of Revelation. Uh, For one, it's a different kind of literature that we're reading here. It's called apocalyptic. That's the genre that, that we're in. Therefore, it's very symbolic, and it was often written by persecuted people, usually leading um, a couple hundred years leading up to the birth of Christ, and about 100 to 200 years after the birth of Christ. This type of literature was quite popular. Many people think Revelation is about telling us when Jesus Christ will return. It actually doesn't do that at all. It's all about telling, it's all about strengthening the church so that we would persevere in our faith as we wait for the return of Jesus. So that's the point of Revelation. And it strengthens the church uh, primarily by revealing to us our God. It reveals his power, his rule, his justice, his wrath, his salvation. It reveals the future that we have with him as God's people. Um, It reveals God. And as it does that, what we see throughout the book is, is the people of God respond in praise. And in fact, uh, it's as if heaven cannot contain itself in this book. There is song after song after song, just simply praising God, praising Jesus for what they have done. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're looking at a song. It's titled, The Song of the Lamb. And as we read the songs in Revelation, every song, especially this one, uh, one thing we must realize is it's inviting us to join with, the, with those who are singing, that we would sing also. So in order for us to know, why, in order for us to sing with them, we must understand what, what the song is, why they're singing, and thus then sing and join with them in song. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at, Psalm, uh, at, the, at the song in chapter 15. And my prayer is that as we go through this, is that our hearts would be moved, is that we would better understand and see who our God is, what he has done, what he is doing, and that we would join with this heavenly chorus in praise today. Uh, One thing we do here is we stand at the reading of God's word. So I'm going to ask you to stand. We do so because we believe uh, God's word comes with his full authority. It is inerrant. It's been inspired by the spirit. And so we stand simply as a way to to honor God and to remind ourselves that this is is not just any book, but it is, is God's book to us. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. 
and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Let's pray. Father, be with us now as we open up your word and as we study it. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of Revelation that reveals to us who you are, reveals to us what you have done. It reveals to us your character, your love, your mercy, your grace, and your wrath and your judgment. And God, as we behold who you are today through your word, God, grow us in our faith. God, I pray that for all who are here who know you, that we'd be spurred on in our faith, that we would desire you all the more, that we would seek to share you with our friends and our neighbors. God, and I pray for anyone who does not know you. Father, I pray that through this text, that Lord, they would see who you are, that they would see that you are the one true God. And I pray that all would come to salvation today. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Well, as you know, Chris preached all of, you notice how I gave Chris a whole chapter, and I just take four verses. Um, So, uh, Chris preached all of chapter 14 last week, and the chapter begins with a picture of God's people on Mount Zion, and now we're once again looking at God's people uh, here in chapter 15. And we're told that John is given a great sign in heaven. And first he mentions the seven angels, seven plagues. We're going to be looking at that when we come back in January. We're going to be looking at the seven bowls and what they are and how that leads to the judgments also in chapters 18, 19, and 20. But what we're told is that John sees a great and amazing sign. We understand that refers to the bulls, but it also refers to the very people of God that are standing in the presence of God. And so what I want us to do is see what is happening here, and why is this such a great and amazing sign? Well, earlier in chapter 12, to remind us, we see that Jesus at the cross defeated uh, the dragon. The dragon is personifying Satan, and because Because of this, Satan is thrown down. In fact, if you remember in chapter 5, we read that Satan was thrown down five times, emphasizing the fact that Satan has been defeated by Jesus Christ. And so now he's been thrown down to the earth where he makes war against the church. This is a good Christmas sermon. I can see that you're already, oh, this goes right into Advent. Um, But he makes war with the church. And we see how he does this in chapter 13. Primarily, or he makes war with the church. He does this through the beasts in chapter 13. And we saw that the beasts represent the secular state powers and individuals and false religions that seek to oppress, deceive, and deceive the people of God. And we see that there are times, because of these beasts, because of the oppression that comes upon the church, it looks as if the church will be defeated. In fact, we read in chapter 13, verse 7, The beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. One thing we have to realize is that we are at war. 
There is a war in this world, and it is not primarily physical. It is spiritual, but it has physical implications. In fact, the reason Christ came was to set free a people for himself and to conquer sin, death, and Satan. And we'll look at that more today and next week. But we see this war taking place today. In fact, uh, just a few days ago on December 10th, 100 people were arrested from a house church in China. And they're now being held in prison and charged with inciting subversion of state power. We see that throughout the world, the church is under attack. But what we see in Revelation and even in this world is that the persecution of the church cannot stop the advancement of the gospel. In fact, it is said in Iran that, there is a great, that uh, where there's great persecution, more people have come to know Christ in the last 40 years than in the 1,300 years combined since Islam came and took over in Iran. So in 1979, there's roughly 500 Christians in Iran. Today, there are more than 500,000 Christians. The gospel is going forth, and persecution does not stop it, but in God's sovereignty, it only advances it. And so what we see in God's word is there's a conflict. The war is seeking to oppress, or the world is seeking to oppress, to attack, to deceive, to destroy the church. But now in chapter 15, we're given a glimpse of the outcome. Just a glimpse. We'll see more later, but we have this glimpse of the outcome. And what we see is that we who believe in Christ stand victorious in the very throne room of God. And we know that it's the throne room because this sea of glass that we read of also appeared back in chapter 4. In chapter 4, we have this glorious vision of God the Father, and He's on His throne, and we see brilliant light all over, and there's like this rainbow over Him, and there's this sea of glass that goes out before Him. And now we read, it's mingled with fire, most likely referring to the judgment that He's about to talk about with the seven bowls. And so we see that we stand as conquerors in the throne room. In fact, it says, all those who have conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea. So in chapter 14, the very beginning, we see this picture of God's people standing on Mount Zion. And now we see the same picture and they're singing praises to God as victors, as conquerors. In Jesus Christ. And so what I want us to do is say, why? look at why are we conquerors? How is it that we are now being described as victorious? What has taken place so that this scene actually has been written and is a truth and a fact for us today? And so the answer actually lies in the song. And if you remember, so chapter 14, we have this people on Mount Zion, and they have harps, and there's this thunderous sound, and we're told they're singing a song. But they don't tell us what the song is. Well, interestingly, now we have a group of people in the throne room, and they're singing a song, and we're told what the song is. So very likely, this is the song that those in chapter 14 are singing. And we are told that in verse 3, and they sing the song of Moses. So what is the song of Moses? Well, very likely... This is referring to the song that Moses leads Israel into singing after God leads them out of Egypt through the Exodus. 
And he brings them through the Red Sea, and the Egyptian army is destroyed in the Red Sea. And then all of God's people standing by the sea are praising God in song. And so uh, there's reasons for that, that we believe it would be that text. For one, Israel standing by the sea as the enemies have been destroyed. Here, in chapter 15, on both sides of chapter 15, are judgment upon those who have rejected God. And we see God's people are standing next to a sea, praising God. We also, as we come into the bowls, which we'll look at in January, the bowls very much are similar to the plagues that came upon Egypt. And so it's very likely the author is wanting us to see that what is taking place here is to remind us of what happened in Egypt and to remind us what happened in Egypt was pointing forward to a much greater exodus, a much greater reality. And so I want to just remind us of the story of the exodus real quick. If you remember, Israel was enslaved for 400 years under Egypt. They were persecuted and abused under Egyptian rule. But then God, through Moses, he brings them out. And he does so by bringing ten plagues upon the Egyptians. And the tenth one is the death of every firstborn child in Egypt. So every Egyptian loses the death of their firstborn son. But for Israel... They sacrificed, they slaughtered a lamb, and they put the blood on its doorframe. And because of that, not one of their firstborns was killed. After this, Egypt, Pharaoh, sends God's people out. He says, leave, just go. We don't want you anymore. They become a thorn in the side of Egypt. And so all of Israel leaves. They plunder the Egyptians. They take riches, and they leave, and they go out to the Red Sea, where they um, were going to be making their way to the Promised Land. But then Pharaoh realizes, well, who's going to do the work for us? Who's going to build our buildings? Who's going to do all the things? We need to get Israel back. And so he he forms his great army, which, if you know, Egypt is the superpower of this day. And they have more chariots than anyone else. Chariots are like tanks at that time. And so they go right after Israel into the wilderness where Israel is trapped against the Red Sea. There's no chance of survival. It's obvious this is going to be a slaughter. They will destroy probably many of the Israelites and take back a few of them to let them know they will never again rebel against Egyptian rule. But then we see God parts the Red Sea and his people cross through on dry land. And then the Egyptians, when they try to cross, the waters come back upon them, destroying the entire Egyptian army. And then there's a song, and I just want to read a part of this song. So this is Exodus 15. I encourage you, go read all of Exodus 15 later. It is an amazing song. Exodus 15, verse 7. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. But you blew with your wind. The sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. That's the picture that we have 
in the exodus of God's people now standing by the sea praising God. And what are they praising God for? For his salvation of Israel and the judgment upon the enemies of God. That is what is taking place here. But why is it also called the song of the Lamb? If you look there in verse 3, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And so what we see is that when we begin to study the Old Testament, often we see that there's things in the Old Testament, peoples, places, and events, that point to greater realities in the New Testament. So don't, don't get lost here. This is going to be a little, little, little study time. Um, we call these types, and actually the idea of this is typology. We study types in the Old Testament, things that are in the Old Testament, that point to greater realities in the New Testament. For example, in the Old Testament, we see there are positions like prophet, priest, and king. Now, all of those prophets, priests, and kings are ultimately pointing us to a greater prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ. Those are types that we see that lead us to Jesus. Um, Adam, in the Old Testament, the first being represents all of humanity. But what we see is he disobeys God. He does not obey. And so, therefore, all of humanity becomes sinful. What do we need? We need a greater Adam, a better representative, one who will not fail, one who will not disobey. We need Jesus Christ. So Adam points us to a greater Adam, which is what we see in Romans chapter 5. The Exodus event is probably the greatest salvation picture we have in the Old Testament. And what it's doing, the entire event, is pointing us to a much greater Exodus that takes place in Jesus Christ. So let me, let me review. Israel is enslaved to Egypt. They're saved by the blood of a lamb, and their enemies are crushed by the wrath of God. All right, that's a brief summary of the, Egypt, of the Exodus. This, this points to the greater Exodus, which we read about in the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, all pointing us to a greater Exodus. And what we see in the New Testament is that the church, God's people, are enslaved to this world, were, were saved by the blood of a lamb, Jesus Christ, and all those who reject God will ultimately be crushed by the very wrath of God. So the Exodus event is meaning to point us to the much greater Exodus, the much greater salvation that takes place in Jesus Christ. The song that they're singing here about God's salvation and about God's judgment here at the Red Sea echoes and points us forward to a much greater song, the song of the Lamb, where we see that we are saved by the blood of Jesus, knowing that one day God will come back in his vengeance and and judge all who have rejected him. And we who have believed in him will stand in the throne room with him forever, praising him. So what we have here is this song, as it's centered around the Exodus, is pointing us forward to this greater reality that we now see is in Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do for the rest of the time is just look at this song. And so we're going to start, um, if you look in the very middle of the song, It says, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. That's the heart of the song. The whole point is God alone is worthy to be worshipped. He's the one who saves. He's the one who judges. In fact, all the plagues that God brought upon the Egyptians showed how all of their gods are meaningless. All of their gods are powerless. None of their gods can save. 
Only God can save. Only God can ultimately judge. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? The question is, who, who's not going to worship you? God, you alone are worthy of worship. And so this song now gives us reasons for why we would worship God. And so we're going to look at the content of the song, and we have four reasons. Number one, God's acts are great and amazing. The first and last line of this song praises God for His great and amazing and righteous acts. Look at, verse, uh, look at the first part. Great and amazing are your deeds. The last line, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And notice, why is it that God does great and amazing acts? Because the second line, O Lord God, the Almighty. It's because He is Almighty. It's because He is powerful, infinite in power, that He does great acts. He doesn't do great acts to become powerful. He's not trying to work His way up the ladder. He is the Almighty. Therefore, as the Almighty, He does great and powerful acts. And what's incredible is that we read, look at the last word of the song. For your righteous acts have been what? Have been what? Revealed. Isn't that incredible? Think about that. They've been revealed. We don't have a God that works in the shadows. We don't have this deistic God here in the Bible who has created everything, has removed himself from creation, and has no care about the rest of the world. But we have a God who is intimate with his creation. And he's involved, and he reveals himself through his great actions. All throughout the Bible, God is praised for what he has done. God is praised for revealing himself. God is praised for acts like the Red Sea where he comes along his people and saves them and judges the enemies. In fact, uh, the book of Psalm is filled with praises to God. In fact, I encourage you, go read Psalm 145. If you're having homework today, you've got to go read Exodus 15. You've got to read Psalm 145. Uh, but go read the rest of Psalm 145. Let me read just the first seven verses. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. What's the song about? God, we will praise you for what you've done, your wondrous works. I will meditate on them. I will declare them. I will proclaim them. I will proclaim God because of all the wonders, all the mighty things that he has done. And notice the words, his greatness is un searchable like just think about that god has revealed himself hasn't he we see that in the exodus we see that in the birth of christ we see that at the cross of jesus christ we see that all throughout the bible god has revealed himself and yet his greatness is unsearchable so what does that tell us it doesn't tell us we can't know anything about god but it does tell us we won't know everything about god right so let us be reminded that God's word reveals to us a lot about God. But God is at work constantly around us. At all times, in all places, he never rests, he never sleeps, he sees all things, is always active. And what we know from his word 
He's moving all events in history, great and small, all to the point where his son Jesus Christ will return. Gather his people, and then Mount Zion will be filled with the people of God as we worship him and praise him for all of eternity. God is at work right now. And if we just take a moment, we can even go back 2,000 years ago and just look at how God was at work. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born. Jesus, the Son of God. He clothes himself in humanity. He becomes one of us. Have you ever think about, I mean, just think about that. We're coming into the Christmas season. Why did Jesus become like us? Why did he clothe himself with humanity? And we have to be careful because this is like the whole sermon for next week. So we just get like a little bit. Um, but the whole sermon next week is, is all on this. But ultimately, he comes because we are sinful. We need someone to rescue us from our sins. Remember Adam? We talked about the representative of all humanity. He sins, and therefore all of humanity, because we come from Adam, are sinful. And therefore, we need someone to redeem us. The problem is we can't because we're all sinful. We need someone outside to come and save us. And so God clothes himself in humanity is born in a manger so one day he would come and die on a cross. At the heart of Christianity is the great and amazing work of Christ where he was born so that he would come and he would die and take our sins and pay the penalty for them. He took God's wrath so that we who believe in him will never taste the wrath of God. That's what we come to at Christmas. Jesus came so one day he would die the death of death. Do you realize that? He came to die the death of death. At his death, he defeats sin, death, and Satan. And now he sits at the throne room of God. We saw that all the way back in Revelation 1. If you remember uh, quite a few weeks ago now, I guess. Revelation 1, God, Christ is this picture of Christ, and he's standing there amongst the churches. He holds the keys of death in Hades. He's in all glory and majesty and splendor. This is our God. This is what he did. So when we come and we're gathering around Christmas, we're celebrating the great and mighty works of Christ. Revelation 12, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers, that's Satan, has been thrown down, who accuses them night who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives unto death. So let's come back. Why is there a people standing around the throne room of God described as victorious? Why? Is it because they are strong? Is it because they defeated Satan? Is it because they overcame death? Is it because they figured out a way to pay the penalty of their sins? No, we're told it's because Christ is victorious. At the cross, Jesus defeats sin, death, and Satan. And now, by grace, through faith in Jesus, we become conquerors in Christ. In Romans 8, we're told that we become heirs in Christ. We're heirs of God, which means all that Christ has, all that He is, now becomes ours also. Because He is victorious, we are victorious. Because he is holy, we are holy. Because he is sinless, we are sinless. Because he is a son of God, we become sons of God. Do you see that? All that Christ is now, by our faith in him, 
we now receive. And so why do we stand as victors? It's not because of us. It's because of the grace of God. And so as we come, and as we gather around Christmas, around the Christmas tree, and and we share the presents, which is good, and I, I hope that you're able to do that. But let us be remindful of the fact that this is all taking place to point us to the much greater gift that God gave us in His Son, Jesus Christ. Let us take time in Christmas, as we should at every season and every month and every day, to remember who our God is, what He has done for us. Especially as we come around Christmas, where we have such an amazing opportunity to teach our children, to shepherd our spouses, to to engage our neighbors with opportunities of sharing, this is why we celebrate Christmas. It's not about our gifts. It's not about our tree. It's about that Christ came, that God revealed his great and mighty acts, ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what they're gathering here around the throne room, and they're praising God ultimately for his greatest, mighty, greatest act, which is Jesus coming and dying on the cross. Number two, that's just the first part of what they're singing. Their song, their song is full of, of theology, full of power. God's judgments are true and perfect. The book of Revelation shows there are two kingdoms. And we've already talked about this. There, there's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, and the kingdom of this world is at war against the kingdom of God. And we read, Just and true are your ways, O king of the nations. Or it might be better translated, O king of the O king of the ages, our God is king of all time, of all periods, of all peoples. And what we see is that throughout Revelation is that each each kingdom has a mark. Those who are part of the kingdom of God are sealed by the power of the Spirit and what God's name is written on their foreheads. We saw that in Revelation 14, verse 3, I believe. And then there's the mark of the beast. And the whole point of these marks is it shows who we worship, right? Those with the name of God written on them worship God. Those with the mark of the beast have rejected God, and they, and they do not worship God, and thus God's wrath is upon them. And so while there is a war here, and, and it looks sometimes as if the church is losing, it looks as if sometimes the world is more powerful, what we understand is though there is a day coming when Christ will return. And he will bring forth judgment. We can't miss this. This is part of Christmas. You're going, oh, how? Well, do you remember when Christ was born, what also happened? Herod is king, and he seeks to kill every newborn child two years and old, two years and younger in Bethlehem. Why? Why is he doing that? It's the same reason Pharaoh threw all the Egyptian babies in in the Nile River. Why? The kingdom of this world is trying to oppose the kingdom of God. It's trying to thwart the plans of God. It thought that maybe we can prevent the serpent crusher, Jesus Christ, from actually coming. But what we see is that Satan cannot thwart God's plans. And there is a day that Christ is coming back where he will bring the judgment. And what we see is that, is that, God's, is that Egypt in, in the Exodus is pictured as the world today. As they came after Israel seeking to kill and destroy, so does 
the world. In fact, if you just turn over to Revelation chapter 16, notice what it says. 16 verse 5. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you have brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, notice these words, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, which we just read in this song, True and just are your judgments, which come from this song right here. The world is seeking to oppose and to oppress and destroy the church. Two months ago, a pastor in India was beheaded and left in the street to show what happens if you want to proclaim the gospel in India. I've already mentioned the explosive growth of Christianity in Iran. Um, Listen to how the government responds to the growth of Christianity in Iran. As Christianity grows rapidly in Iran, the Islamic government and the clergy in power are alarmed. He said their only strategy to slow down this growth is through a campaign of fear, violence, and intimidation. We expect the persecution in Iran will increase as the Islamic government feels threatened by the spread of Christianity among Muslims in Iran. We can't miss that there's a war in this world. And it is not primarily physical. It is spiritual. And that is why Christ has come. That's why we ultimately celebrate Christmas. Is that Christ was born. So he would one day go to the cross. But that he would save a people for himself. And overcome sin, death, and Satan. We praise our God for his judgment. Because he is the perfect father, the perfect judge, and the perfect king who brings vengeance on those who hurt his children. Do you think about that? He brings vengeance on those who have attacked the church, oppressed the church. You notice, our God is righteous. He does not let the wicked go unpunished. What would happen if an earthly judge did not punish murderers? What would happen if he just let the violent go? We would say, well, he's unjust. We would want to be rid of him. And if we would dare say that about an earthly judge, we have the infinite God who is judge and is perfect and holy in every way. And he knows all who have been saved and purified by the blood of the Lamb, and he knows all who have rejected him and spurned his glory. And when we come into Revelation, we read that his wrath is severe. In fact, the pictures in Revelation of God's wrath are meant to awaken us to the reality of what happens if we reject God. Hear this. God's wrath is meant to spur on the faith of the righteous. When we read passages about his wrath, it's meant to spur us on. It's meant to awaken Christians who begin to slumber. If you remember, in chapters 2 and 3, we read about the churches. Well, we have churches like Sardis, who they look asleep who they look dead. They say they're alive, but they have no fruit. Or Laodicea, who's walking around blind and naked. And so these passages ultimately are to be geared for the church so that we would say, are we living for Christ? These passages are to awaken us. Are we living for God? Are we slumbering in our faith? Are we becoming entangled with the things of this world? It's meant to bring us out of complacency. It's meant to spur us on in our evangelistic efforts. It's meant to remind us there is a a consequence of rejecting God. Are we sharing the gospel? And I want to encourage you, Christmas is an amazing time to share the gospel. 
It is when it is much easier at this time of year, and like Easter, especially here in America, where we can still leverage Christianity fairly well at those times of year, asking people to join us in church, sharing the gospel, asking what are they doing, telling them why we celebrate these days. And it's also meant to horrify us. These passages, chapter 14, God's wrath is compared to grapes being crushed in a wine press. Chapter 16, lightning, earthquake, 100-pound hailstones, mountains melting, islands fleeing. It's like this creation being undone as God's holiness and his wrath is coming upon this earth to tear it apart. Chapter 19, birds are gorging themselves on the flesh of those who have rejected God. Chapter 20, we see everyone's name who's not written in the Lamb's book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. Christ came to save And for those who have rejected, those who spurn his glory, those who say, we will not fear God, we will not glorify him, there is great wrath for that. I urge you, if you have not trusted in Jesus today, if you are here, I urge you to trust in him today. Repent and believe in Jesus. Receive the forgiveness of your sins. If you say you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and yet just even as we're here, you're going, man, have I become complacent? Have I begun to slumber? I just urge you just to repent of that. Let this text just move you to spur your faith on into obedience for Christ. Our God is good, and He is a righteous judge, and we will praise Him for all of eternity. Because, I mean, get the picture in your head of, The Egyptians are pursuing Israel, seeking to destroy and kill them. The righteous God protects his people, those who have trusted him, his children, and he he judges those who have not. And therefore, his people will praise him. That is the picture we have. This world is seeking to devour and destroy the church. Oh, but there's a day coming where our, our God, mighty and just, will come and judge, and we will stand forever forever praising him for his judgments. God's holiness is exclusive to his nature. That's number three. God's holiness. I just want to take a moment, just think about God's holiness. Throughout the Bible, we read passages like, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. In fact, in Revelation 4, 8, 9, 10, 11, somewhere right in there, God is being praised, holy, holy, holy. All throughout the scripture, God is called holy. And, and it's always helpful for us to have a good definition for the word holy, right? Because I think, I think that's one of those words we kind of, we throw around a lot as Christians, and it's like, what does that mean? And then we say it means set apart. Well, what does it mean set apart from? Uh, set apart's a good definition, but it's probably not the best definition. Um, Sinclair Ferguson, he wrote a book on holiness, and he described holiness, and this was really helpful for me, as being devoted to God. So as God is holy, it means he's fully devoted to himself, which who else should God be devoted to? Like, think about that. Who else? Who else should the infinite, all-powerful God be devoted? You? Me? America? Some other? I mean, doesn't doesn't that sound silly when we kind of put it in those terms? He's devoted to himself. That's what it is to be holy. When you had instruments in the Old Testament used in the temple worship, what were they for? They were called holy, and thus they were devoted to to God. Israel was to be holy, meaning devoted to God. The church, God's people, is called holy, which means they're to be devoted to God. 
I find that to be much more helpful, also more true than set apart, because, well, we'll skip that. That gets to a longer, longer reason. But holiness, being devoted to God. Um, because our God is holy, I want you to think about this. It means he will always act in accord with his character. And if he's good, if he's righteous, if he's perfect, if he's gracious, if he's merciful, if he's kind, if he's steadfast, if he's loving, what will he always do? He will always act in accordance. Why? Because he's holy. Holiness is kind of like the summation of all of God's attributes. And everything God does will always be aligned with his character, will always align with his holiness, which means he will never violate his character, he will never lie, he will never deceive, he will never lose his temper, he will never become irrational and angry. It's because he is holy, we know that he will keep all of his promises. Now just think about that. He keeps all of his promises. Why? Because he's holy. Because he's mostly devoted to himself. And he says, well, if I am faithful, if I am true, if I am just, I cannot violate who I am. So therefore, if he makes a promise, what will he do? He will fulfill the promise. He must, which means because God is holy, we know that when we ask forgiveness for him, what? He will cleanse us of our sins. Because God is holy, we know that he was always with us, strengthening us. We know that because he's the God of all comfort, he will always provide comfort to those who are hurting. It's because God is holy, we know that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I've I've said several times now, Revelation is really the unpacking of Romans 8. I really, really believe that's where that passage comes from. As we're in Revelation, it just highlights the promises of God. And it shows them all coming to fulfillment. Do you know where God's not fickle? Isn't that good? Like his emotions are not like a roller coaster. Could you imagine if he's like a teenager going through puberty at times? Like would that be scary? Like all of a sudden we show up on Judgment Day, we believed in Jesus, he's like, oh yeah, I changed my mind. Oh, was there another way? He's, he, he says, yes, and I didn't tell you. Oh, great. Because that's what teenagers would do, right? Like, could you just imagine if he's just like that? Well, one day it's this. Well, one day it's this. And he always acts like he knows everything, but he doesn't really. Like, like, like just think that through. But who is our God? He's holy He's perfect. He's he's immutable, meaning he's unchanging. His character is always perfect. When he says that he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, and that all who confess the name of Jesus Christ will be saved, what do we know? All who confess Jesus will what? Be saved. If we believe in Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins. What do we know? We will be saved. If he says that all in Christ are going to be conquerors in Christ, What are we? Conquerors in Christ now. You realize that? The conquering doesn't start later. It might not look like we conquer right now. Oh, but we are. Remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3? It sure didn't look like they were conquerors when they were put in the fiery furnace for not bowing down to King Nebuchadnezzar's idol. But but what happened? They were victors. They were victors. And today in Christ, we are victors. Not because of who we are, 
but because of who God is and that he's holy. He's perfect in every way. His word, which is what, what we stand, we stand just simply to visibly remind us of the inerrancy of his word. It is without error. What God says we can trust. It's because God is holy we can be encouraged to read the Bible. It's because he is holy we know that we can share the gospel confidently that it saves because he says it will. Number four, God's worth will be seen by all the nations. Look at, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. Think about what can unite all peoples? What can end war, racism, sex trafficking, abuse, persecution? What can bring peace to all people? In Genesis 11, we see that we see the divisions of people. Remember the Tower of Babel? All of a sudden, all, all the people are divided and they spread out amongst the world. And there's division everywhere. What can unite all peoples? The story of the Bible is that God is creating a people for himself in Jesus Christ. In fact, in Revelation 5.9, we read this. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. In fact, now think about this. Let's go back to the Christmas story. Jesus comes into the world providing hope. And in the Christmas story, now we all know that it's probably like a year or two later that the wise men actually showed up. You all know that, right? It wasn't right like when they showed up. They had a long journey on camels. It takes a long time. But when they get there, what do we have? We have Gentiles, the nations, bowing before Jesus as king. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Like right there in the Christmas story, the nations are gathering with their gifts, worshiping God. This is the picture that we have all throughout Revelation. Who, it's not what, but who can bring unity among all peoples? Who can bring us together in joy and peace for all time that we'd be gathered together? Jesus Christ. He alone saves this song praises God for who he is and what he has done. As we come into Christmas, as we gather around the tree, as you spend time with families, let's remember the great acts of God. I, I think that's what this song does. It's, it's in reflection of who God is. It's in reflection of who he is and what he's done. And therefore, they burst out in praise. And so I think what it teaches us is that we need to regularly reflect on who God is. We need to regularly reflect on who God is, what he has done. So I encourage, we do that through God's word, but I also encourage you to think, how has God been faithful in your own life? As you're gathered around the tree, as you're gathered with your kids, walk through, how has God been faithful this year? The last five years, six months, pick a time frame, but reflect on who God is. Because as we do that, what we see throughout Revelation, throughout the book of Psalm, throughout the entire Bible, it moves us to praise See, Satan wants more than anything for us to be more concerned about gifts, more concerned about our trees, more concerned about, well, did we get everything right for everyone and make sure that we're just running around. And I get it. We run around a lot during Christmas, right? Like, and that's okay. Like, we don't have to beat ourselves up about it. But we do need to make sure that in all the running around, it's all done for the ultimate purpose of praise to God. And constantly we're doing everything in reflection of who our God is. So I encourage you, 
As we're gathering, let's open presents, but we must reflect on the much greater gift of Jesus Christ in knowing that we will stand. Do you know where you will stand one day? Will you stand in the throne room? Are you a victor now in Christ? If you're not, believe today. Believe today. Confess the name of Jesus Christ. Receive forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you, you are forgiven today. You become a child today of God. You become a citizen of God's kingdom. You become a victor and conqueror in Christ. I encourage you to do that. Let us be filled with joy as we remember the great and amazing acts of our God. Let us be filled with joy as we, may, as we remember his holiness. As we remember that he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for us. This song is bursting forth in praise, inviting us to, to remember and to praise God for all that he is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray and I'm going to ask the men to come forward, and we're going to partake of communion. Now just think about, what are we doing in communion? Every week we take communion. What do we do? We're remembering what God has done. And we're remembering what he will do, right? We're looking backwards towards the cross. We're remembering our present forgiveness because of that. And we're remembering that in the future Christ will return. That's what happens here. And so as we do this, this is not just something we do apart from worship. This is an act of worship. In fact, everything we do on Sunday, the singing of songs is worship. In fact, all of our songs ought to reflect this passage. It ought to reflect who our God is. As, as, we, as we spend time in our fellowship time, do you realize that that's a time of worship? What are we doing? We're actually giving a picture of what it looks like for all of eternity for God's people to be in joy with one another. That's what we're doing. It's just a taste of that. As we give of our offerings, what is that? It's the giving of everything we have to God. As we, as we read of his word, we're praising him for who he is. As we come to communion, we're remembering God, what he has done for us. Everything we do on Sunday is just an act of worship to God. And so as we come into this time, let us remember what God has done for us. He's done it because he's holy and he's revealed it to us so that we would know him. Let me pray.